We turn to God's word this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, let's read together this entire chapter. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, Seth your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all the goodness, all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of the, our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or, being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or... What likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image. 
that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. It's on the basis of this passage in Holy Scripture and others like it. That becomes the basis for the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism, questions and answers 24 and 25. Lord's Day 8, the first question, how are these articles divided? That is, the articles of the Apostles' Creed at the end of Lord's Day 7. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption. The third, of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one, only, true, and eternal God. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, last Lord's Day we learned from Lord's Day 7 about the faith that God gives unto us. And the question was asked, 
what's necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer is all the things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. So that now, all the way up to Lord's Day 22, the catechism will be examining and expounding those individual articles of the Apostles' Creed. But first, we have Lord's Day 8, which serves as an introduction to the rest of the Apostles' Creed. And we know that the Apostles' Creed is all about all about the Trinity, and therefore Lord's Day 8 is going to introduce us and expound that doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ has always confessed, we believe in a triune God, and we believe that faith in the, the triune God is absolutely necessary for salvation. And that means that you cannot deny the Trinity and still claim to be a Christian. Now, among the early church heretics, there was a man named Arius. And that man, Arius, said that there was a time when the Son was not. Meaning that there was some time in all past eternity that God the Father created and brought into being the Son which means that the Son is not equal with the Father and therefore cannot be counted among the Godhead. Nowadays you have Unitarians who deny the Trinity. Nowadays, uh, at least among the cults, you hear of the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the Trinity and all of these groups claim that they stand in the tradition of the Christian faith and yet they deny that God is triune. And that's a good test of any teaching. Does it deny the Trinity? And if it does, you can be sure that that is a false doctrine and a false teaching. Now concerning this doctrine of the Trinity, you and I cannot know this doctrine apart from sacred scripture. No man invented this doctrine. No man can know it by himself. No man can even look out in all of creation and say, well, there are all of these instances of of threes in creation, and therefore that leads me to believe that God is triune. Not that way, but we know it. The doctrine of the Trinity only because God has revealed it unto us in his word. And that's confessional with us here in this Lord's Day. Uh, Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the only true and eternal God. Well, this morning, let's approach this this admittedly very heavy and weighty doctrine, let's approach this not as some boring doctrine that we can't wait to say a few things about so that we can move on to some more interesting doctrines, but let's be of the mind we love the doctrine of the Trinity. 
This is something that's dear to us. This is something that's precious to us. We love the doctrine of the Trinity because we love God himself. We love God so much that we want to know as much as possible about him. He who has given us life, he who has given us salvation, who has forgiven all of our sins in Jesus Christ, who has given us the hope of eternal life. And our response is, what a great God we have. And we want to know him more and more, as much as the scriptures allow us to. And that becomes the occasion then for our reading, Isaiah chapter 40, because in Isaiah chapter 40, we learn all about the work of the triune God. The prophet Isaiah declaring that this is the work of God in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that already in verse 2, in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his work, her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, the, the, the iniquity of the church, of all of Christ's people, it's gone. The declaration we have here in Isaiah 40 of the Spirit too, as the Spirit, we read of the Spirit, especially in the latter verses, as the Spirit being the one who gives us strength so that we mount up with eagle's wings. This all is the work of the Holy Spirit. And such a wonderful message that the church has to proclaim concerning this triune God that the church as it were, as she declares the gospel, gets herself up into a high mountain and declares to all people, as verse 9 says, behold your God. That means to look upon him and to gaze upon him and to believe in him for all your salvation. Our theme for the sermon is taken there from verse 9, behold the triune God. Let's look at Scripture's testimony in the first point. Secondly, the greatness of God in the second point. And finally, our response. Behold the triune God. We start off with this question. How do we know that God is triune? That God is triune means that he is one in a certain respect. And that he is three in a different respect. He is one with regard to his being. He is three with respect to his persons. And now the catechism asks that in question 25. Well, if there's only one God, why do we speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And have you ever asked that that question? We shouldn't be afraid to ask that question. In fact, as we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, we're being taught the right questions to ask. We're being taught the right questions to ask so that we can be directed to Scripture to find the answer to those questions so that now we have this doctrine or this question of the Trinity. Where does it come from? Well, it's the truth of God, and that truth of God we learn from the Bible. God has so revealed himself in his word. We are very bold as a church to confess that God is triune, 
Because this is the declaration of Scripture. We are bold to confess this mysterious and and difficult to understand reality that God is three in a certain respect and one in another respect, but we are bold to speak publicly to the whole world that this is true and this is what we believe because this is the declaration of Scripture. Let's start with the Old Testament. The overwhelming emphasis in the Old Testament is this, that God is one. And perhaps the outstanding passage in the Old Testament that teaches that truth, that God is one, is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is somewhat of the summary of the law. We read Deuteronomy 5 earlier. And then in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, this is immediately after Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people, and he gives them to know the summary of the law, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's only one Lord. There's only one God, and that is Jehovah God. And then there are other texts in the Old Testament confirming this oneness of God. Many texts, I only draw your attention to a few. In the book of Isaiah, a few chapters later, Isaiah 44, verse 8. Isaiah 44, verse 8. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. And then in the next chapter, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And these two passages, and many others like it, but these two passages underscore what God did again and again And again, in the Old Testament, he drilled into the Israelites that he alone is God. Something that the Israelites needed to know because they were surrounded by the gods of the nations. And that was always going to be a stumbling block. That was always going to be a temptation for the Israelites to look at the gods of the nations and to say, there's something to them. And we think that perhaps we will worship them as well. And so Jehovah God exhorts the Israelites over and over again, listen to me, my people. I am the only one. There is no other God. I am the one living God. And then you even have that truth that's taught that God is one in the, in the very first commandment that we read this morning. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's not implying that those other gods are real, but that's because all those gods are no gods at all. There is only one. One God. And that's the first emphasis of the Old Testament. But even as that's the first emphasis, that God is only one And yet, in the Old Testament, we also learn 
that God reveals himself in a certain sense as being more than one. So that in the first place, you have that in the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is translated God. In the original Hebrew, that word God is in the plural form. So that whether referring to the gods of the nation, little g, or referring to our God, capital G, the same word is used. Well, then one might ask, well, why isn't that word God always translated then in the plural? Well, the answer is, is that you have to find that from the context. So that the authors of, or the, the translators of the Bible, rightly, of the English version, rightly translate that word in the singular when it refers to Jehovah God. So that, for example, the very first passage of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because that word created demands a singular subject. But now the point is that even by that very word God, that by its plural form in the Old Testament, that suggests and implies a plurality in the Godhead. But then in the second place, still in the Old Testament, indications that God is, in some sense, is more than one. Go back to when God was created in the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, God created man. And God said, Genesis 1 verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what that means is that while the true God is one and only one, and yet there must be also a sense in which we can speak of God as being more than one. As God says, let us make man in our image. And then in the third place, still more from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord said unto my Lord, the Lord, Jehovah God, said unto my Lord, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as well, Psalm, one more Psalm, Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And when you study that verse, you can't help but notice three. The word. John tells us in John 1 that the word made the world. And then also by the breath of his mouth being the Holy Spirit. So again, we're building a case for the Trinity by looking at all these Old Testament texts that speak to us of God as being more than one. And these Old Testament texts don't lay out the doctrine. They don't spell out the threeness of God. But nevertheless, we may speak of God as being one in a certain respect and then of being more than one 
in another respect. And now when we come to the New Testament, still there's the point, one and only one God, and yet at the same time the teaching of the three individual distinct persons. So that in the New Testament, it becomes clear, God in heaven sending forth his Son, And his son, very clearly God's son, our Savior, who is indeed very God, who receives the praise of the people, who does all the works of God, who receives the honor that is due only to God, and it's clear that the son is God. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, I and my father are one. And then there's the third person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And you remember the history of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. In the early church, how they sold a particular possession and they brought that money to the apostles, but they lied and held back part of the price. And the apostle Peter says, you've lied unto God. And in the very next verse, And you've lied unto the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true. Because the Holy Spirit is God. The New Testament then speaks of all three persons of the Godhead. When the Lord Jesus sends forth his disciples in the Great Commission. And he explains that baptism is to be administered, note, in the name of In the one name, not the names, but in the one name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And then there's the blessing of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The Apostle Paul bringing his letter to a close, and he wants to bestow upon the Corinthians the the, the blessing of God, and so he does that in the name of the triune God, the grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So that the New Testament is unmistakably clear. There is one God. He is one with regard to his being or his essence, And he is three with regard to his persons. Three persons who are divine. Three persons who are distinct one from another. And yet they are not divided as three separate gods. But one God. All three equally eternal of the same essence. And that's why we are bold in our confession of the Trinity because of what we've been doing for the past 10 minutes or so, because God's word says so. So that when we go to the Bible, we learn the doctrine of the Trinity. As the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, we never say, well, well, now we understand it entirely. Now we comprehend it. We understand it fully. No, that's... That's not the truth. The church understands that we can only state what the Bible states and we may not take away from that or add to it, but that we simply believe and confess 
what the scriptures tell us, that God is one with respect to his being and at the same time three with respect to his persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity and this doctrine declares to us that indeed we have a great God. And that, in the second point, let's look at the greatness of God being triune. And what I mean by that is what's so significant about God being triune? So that's who he is. That's what he's like. Why is that so special? Well, in the first place, the fact that God is triune, this underscores for us the covenantal nature of God. God can have covenant life within his own being exactly because he is triune. Think of it this way. If God were only one person, then there would be no other to fellowship with and to have communion and to talk to. And that's something that we can understand. If you had to be all alone in this life, well, that, that's not a very happy prospect. And if we were continually by ourselves without ever coming into contact with somebody who is like us, well, that would be a rather, rather lonely and sad and very hard existence. And there's a reason why one of the harshest punishments a jailkeeper can inflict upon a prisoner is putting that prisoner in solitary confinement for days. That's, that's bad enough, but sometimes for months, for a long time, that's difficult, that's terrible. If God were only one person from all eternity, he would be all alone and there would be no one else with whom to fellowship. But that's not the triune God. There are three in the Godhead. And so close and intimate are these three persons that they are one in being. This is the covenant communal life that God enjoys in himself, in the Godhead. And we can even be more specific. The covenant life that God enjoys is what we call family life. The name of the persons indicate that. Father and son. Because when you have a father and where you have a son, you have a family. The Holy Spirit being part of that family as being the breath of love that proceeds from the father to the son from the Son to the Father. So Father and Son and Holy Spirit as a beautiful family life. And we can speak of it as family life because that's the way the Bible speaks of it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The household of God, and that word household is a word to describe members of family living together under one roof. 
That's God, first of all, in his being, a family God, triune, and God brings us into that family life, the household of God. And this family life, then, of God, of the triune God, is set forth as a pattern for you and for me, so that in our families, we are called to be families who enjoy covenant fellowship one with another. Because God, in revealing himself as triune, covenant, family God, is teaching us to live like him in our family life. So that there is the closeness of family life with parents and children living in the same house, under the same roof, living with each other and loving one another, talking with each other day after day. Now we know in our family sometimes there's friction and there's tension and we don't live out that covenant life to the degree that we are called to live it out and to enjoy it and that's to our shame But nonetheless, the truth of the Trinity is that God enjoys family life within his own being and we strive for that kind of a home and we strive for that kind of an atmosphere even in our families so that it very really becomes a cause for concern nowadays in Christian families when this fellowship is not enjoyed as much as it could be or as it ought to be when it's neglected, when it's disparaged. And our family lives are simply so busy and I suppose that there's nothing wrong with busyness as such. Children getting older for whatever reason, at times they must be away from the supper table and we have all sorts of obligations that we must tend to. There are places that we have to go so that it's not uncommon that even in Christian families, the members of family, especially as the children grow up into their teenage years, it become quite hard for all of the members of family to come together at least once a day around the dinner table and to express their oneness But that ought not to be the case. Fathers in particular, you fathers are required to see to it that at some point throughout the day that the family comes together and expresses your oneness and that communion because that's what God does. And that oneness of the family is an intimate oneness so that if there is ever a one who is opposed to that oneness within the family, then that one is rebuked so that the children understand and know that to come together as family, this is what we do. This is what expected. This is where it requires wisdom on the part of father and mother that this isn't some type of a forced oneness, a forced coming together. That can often aggravate the situation and make it even more miserable. But this is a oneness that is genuine and sincere where we love one another in the body of Jesus Christ and in our own families and that we find it to be our heart's desire to come together, to speak, to express our oneness. 
and our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, you and I show that we are patterning our family life after God's covenant life within the Trinity. But still more with regard to the significance of the Trinity, the the fact that God is triune explains how it's possible for sinners such as you and I to be saved. If God were not triune, there would be no creation. If God were not triune, there would be no salvation. If God were not triune, well, there would be no God. And let's focus especially on God's salvation of sinners. It's the salvation given by the triune God. So that before the beginning of time, God in his eternal counsel planned not only creation and what happened on those six days, but planned our redemption. And that plan was to be carried out by the three persons in the Trinity so that we have God the Father having a work that needs to be accomplished and then God the Son receiving that work of the Father and Jesus speaks time and time again of the work that the Father gave me to do. And that work was to die the death of the cross so that when Jesus said, it is finished, that work of redemption was accomplished. And Jesus' suffering for the wrath of our sins is over with. That's Jesus referring to the work that the Father gave him to do. But then there's the Holy Spirit. And God, the Holy Spirit, gives us those blessings that Jesus earned for us on the cross. Without the Holy Spirit, all of those blessings of salvation that Jesus merited for you and for me would remain simply as treasures in the storehouse of heaven without ever coming to us, without ever making their way unto us. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes laden with all those blessings that Jesus has merited for us. And the Spirit showers them upon the church and gives them to us and applies those spirit, those, those blessings unto us so that we need the Holy Spirit. We are born again of the Holy Spirit. We depend upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the comfort he affords us who must be God together with the Father and the Son, else the Holy Spirit would be able to do nothing for us. And who is it that enables us to walk rightly? Who is it that sanctifies us? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Spirit that we are able to live and be faithful and serve God and survive every attack of the devil and not despair and endure every trial and every hardship. It's all due to the indwelling Spirit, who is God himself. But now let's back up and say, 
that if there'd be no Trinity, there'd be no Trinity, then there would be no Father to send the Son, and there would be no Son to accomplish the work of the Father. If there be no Trinity, there would be no Holy Spirit to give unto us all of the blessings that Jesus Christ earned for us. And therefore, all our salvation, all our being saved from sin, being delivered from iniquity, all our salvation, it only happens if God is triune. One being and three in persons. And in this connection, think how meaningful it is that when we are baptized, we are baptized as Jesus commanded the church to be baptized in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's expounded for us in, in the baptism form. And whenever there's a baptism, we read that baptism form. When we're baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he doth make an eternal covenant of grace with us. And when we're baptized in the name of the, the Son, the Son sealeth unto us that he doth wash us in his blood from all our sins. When we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit assures us that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of his body. That's astounding. All three persons of the Trinity pledging themselves to you, as it were, to the spiritual seed, God the Father caring for you, God the Son caring for you, God the Holy Spirit caring for you, the Father loving you, the Son redeeming you, the Holy Spirit working in you. What a wonderful thing it is that there is the Trinity Without the Trinity, it would be impossible for there to be a single baptism in this church. Or at least for, if it was administered, it would be administered wrongly if there were no Trinity. And then further from learning about the greatness of God, the significance of the Trinity from Isaiah 40, we learn in this chapter all about the greatness of God. All about the greatness of God who is triune. Isaiah 40 doesn't spell out the doctrine of Trinity, but it does speak of God as the creator. It speaks of God as the one who pardons all of our iniquities and all our transgressions. And then at the end of the chapter of God is being the one who gives us strength so that we can run and not be weary, so that you don't read the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, Isaiah 40 magnifies and extols the greatness of our triune God. And so Isaiah says, Who therefore is like our God? And our God, verse 12 of Isaiah 40. 
Our God who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, who meted out the heaven with a span, who comprehended the dust of the earth, who measured the mountains in his scales. Can, can anybody else do that? And so great is our God, as verse 16 says, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. In Bible times, Lebanon was a place that was full of trees. And amongst those trees, all kinds of different animals. And verse 16 says, even if you take all of the trees of Lebanon and you put them under an altar for a fire to burn them, and even if you take all of those beasts that live in that forest of Lebanon, it's still not enough to satisfy God. The triune God, so great and exalted is he. And then the final part of the chapter, can you compare anything to God? The God the God who has done all of these wonderful things, the idols that people worship are nothing, but our triune God is great. And because we have such a great God, because he is such a faithful father to save us, to deliver us, to give us the spirit, let us never say, that my way is hid from God. That's what we have in verse 27. After all of Isaiah 40, all of the greatness of God and who he is and what he does for his people, the temptation is to say this, verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from my God? That's something that we're tempted to say at times. God doesn't, God doesn't know my life. I have all these problems. I have all these difficulties. I have so many cares. I have so many concerns. And it doesn't feel as if God is doing anything about it. My way is hid from the Lord. He's not doing anything. And then remember what we have in verses 27 and 28. And we must take that to heart. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, near, neither is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might. He increaseth strength. So do you understand at least a little bit more now of the greatness of our triune God? This is the one true God. This is how he has revealed himself. And what a great God we serve. And when you begin to understand this truth and it sinks into your hearts and souls, what does our response become that God is triune? Well, in the first place, with regard to our prayers, let's seek God as triune. With that knowledge, with that awareness, 
Let's be conscious that as we bow our heads to God in prayer in this worship service and in our own devotions at home, that we come unto him who is triune. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, speaking about how we approach God in our prayers, knowing that he is triune. Ephesians 2, verse 18, For through him, Jesus Christ, for through Jesus Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Well, who is the Father? Well, who is God? He's our Father. And we have access to him through the Son, and that vital connection comes by way of the Holy Spirit. So that very practically what that means is that when you pray, you may say something like this, Father, I draw nigh unto thee in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. And, And doesn't that even underscore this point that If God were not triune, not only would there be no salvation for us, but we would not even be able to pray unto him. Um, So let's be conscious, therefore, in our praying, praying to God the Father, knowing that it's possible only through the Son and in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the comfort, then, of Isaiah 40, to know this God. This is the glad tidings of salvation, that God the Father sent his Son, that his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished all our warfare and suffered the wrath of God for our sins so that our iniquities are gone. And that all of this is applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And so, congregation of Jesus Christ, gaze upon this Lord, this God. Love him and adore him. And as verse 9 says, behold your God, the triune God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply it to our hearts. We stand in awe of thee, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou hast so revealed thyself to us in thy word, that we may know thee, that we may confess thee rightly, and that we may believe in thee, the God of our salvation. Give us thy spirit that we would walk in all godliness and holiness before thee and among men and that we may show to others that we are those who know thy word and walk according to thy commandments. Forgive our sins, bless us in thy mercy. We pray this all in Jesus' name alone. Amen.